This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Roman is present. And isn't it great, Jonathan, that uh, we go to former colonies and we ask them to invest their money into us? I think that's what they did for 300 years, and we hated that. But now it's cool because Cyril does it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's quite a con- controversial way to put it. But uh, absolutely, we are uh, running off to our former oppressors in uh, London, no less, and other places, uh, and begging them to put their money into our country, even though... Every chance we get, we say really shitty things about them. Um, and then we can't guarantee that the money is still there when it reaches here. Well, well, we can't guarantee that. We can't guarantee that when the money does reach here, that it will be used for anything that we said it would be used for. Um, you know, I find it interesting because Cyril went on this tour. You'll be, you'll be listening to this a couple of weeks after this, this has taken place. Uh, he had some high-profile interviews on media uh, across there, and he he's talking about stuff like the Internet of Things, you know, which is which is which is interesting. I think um, I heard that term about ten years ago. Mm. Glad he's look, look, it's it is it is still a it is still a thing. We did have a, a troglodyte as our president for a while, and so you wouldn't have expected to hear that kind of terminology coming out of his mouth. Um, you know, the Internet of Things was probably some ordering catalog on the Gupta's computer for him. But it's great that he thinks that, but then he's coming back to a country where um, you'd imagine experts in the Internet of Things right now probably live in China or Silicon Valley. They're either white males or Asians. Um, we can't employ those people because our equity acts say, well, you know, we're looking for people of color, Ramon. Right. Like racing car drivers. Like apparently. racing car drivers, yes. Um, so uh, it, it's all, it, it's all quite farcical. It's all farcical in terms of going and begging the, the colonizers for money. Uh, it's, it's farcical in, in, in trying to get them to invest in markets. They would very much like to be free so that their money would go as far as it could and then very much re- regulating and restricting those markets. Right, so come invest into our country. Uh, we can't guarantee property rights because that's a huge issue we're going to undermine. And the money that you do invest will probably be used to build another Inkandla or it'll be sent to India. So, yeah, good going on all sides, I think. Yeah, it's uh, it's a dog show. And I suppose to discuss some of the stuff uh, related to this, more of the politics around it, uh, certainly someone with uh, vast knowledge on politics, uh, this week, do you want to introduce our guest? Right, and to get away from those sort of things that we've been discussing in this intro, we have uh, Leon Schreiber in studio. He is an author, a researcher, and has a PhD in political science, and has written a book called Coalition Country, um, and that's about all I know about you, Leon. So welcome. Thanks a lot, guys. So, uh, hold on, hold on. Say, say, say thanks a lot again, because I've totally missed that. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> Don't worry, we won't edit that at all. You'll completely hear that at the beginning of the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. So, I mean, a few things about the book. Firstly, the cover. It's quite a good one. Unfortunately, um, Feral Havaji approved of your book, so I'm a bit suspicious. Um, no hard feelings, Feral. Come back on the show. We invited you a few times. But anyway, Leon, welcome. Uh, so your big premise in the book is basically South Africa's had one party rule for over 70 years now. We need to change that. Um, and you think coalitions might be a way to do so. Yeah, in fact, uh, <clears throat> what I think is is that coalitions are the only way to do so. Uh, 
So as you mentioned, actually this year is the 70th anniversary of the National Party winning in 1948. Uh, and since then, they, you know, we've been under one-party rule, either under the NP or in the last 25 years uh, under the ANC, 24 years. Uh, so I think as things have shifted in, in South Africa in recent years and, and our politics have become more fluid, especially with uh, the 2016 local elections, uh, I think the time has arrived for us to start imagining the future and uh, you know it sounds like a cliche but but it's really something that south africa can can uh, can really benefit from and once we start thinking about what what would actually happen if the anc loses whether we're talking about a province like Gauteng or nationally or as in we've seen with municipalities i think uh, a lot of people may be sort of a bit of, at a loss for what it actually means what comes next uh, there's, there is a perception, and it's certainly fueled by political parties and by the media as well, that opposition parties are governments in waiting. You hear the EFF talk about this a lot. Uh, that's just not true. Once the ANC loses its 50%, wherever it may be, it is almost guaranteed to be replaced by a coalition, which either then includes still the ANC or is composed of current opposition parties. So it, when when we imagine a South Africa after the ANC, doesn't mean that the ANC is gone, but it is after the ANC in the sense of the ANC as the dominant beast we've known it as for the last 25 years. And trying to think about what comes next is really the, the goal of the book. And I think it's unavoidable to conclude that what comes next will be coalitions. You, you, so, oh yes, yes. I mean, so I mean, so just to give a few facts. I mean, the book was written before uh, Zuma resigned, and before the shenanigans in the Eastern Cape. I mean, you can't be blamed for that, of course. Um, however, there's one there's one condition that you do say that the ANC actually gives up power willingly. I don't think they would, to be fair with you, but uh, that is one condition, and it's really impossible to tell if they will do so. Yeah, it's actually it's actually one of the assumptions that I mentioned at the beginning of the book, yeah. saying all of the arguments that are going to follow are premised on a couple of assumptions. Democracy and, remains in place. Yes, exactly. One assumption being that the ANC is actually going to lose power at some point. Uh, the second assumption being that no single opposition party is going to then immediately muster a 50% majority. And the third assumption being, well, the ANC is going to give up power. So mm. I, do, I do touch on it in the book. And basically what I say there... I think is sort of the state of play. I hear what you're saying, uh, Ramon, but what I would, what I would say is that we, we see signs of it on both mm. ends here, right? So it's easy to point to things that make you worried. So if you think about the uh, political violence in KwaZulu Natal and, you know, in Gauteng as well, we recently had assassinations on the highway, uh, which seem to be politically connected. So clearly there's a lot at stake for the ANC. Even internally. So when candidates in local elections feel like they might lose out to an ANC opponent even, they're willing to kill for it. So absolutely it's something that should be on our, uh, on our radar screens. But on the other hand, we do have some evidence that the ANC, where, where the ANC has given up power. So the first one most obviously being Cape Town and the Western Cape. Now I think people can quickly say, well, but the ANC never really cared about the Western Cape. And I think to an extent it's true. It's, I mean, if there's one province that they would say, uh, you know, we're ambivalent about it anyway, it is probably there. So, but, but I think that's another place where the 2016 election has been crucial in, the, in sort of the maturation of our democracy because things have been difficult and there have been violent skirmishes not only in Nelson Mandela Bay but also in, in Joburg, I think, most pertinently. Um, 
But the ANC, broadly speaking, did give up power after they lost these mm. metropoles. And it's not something to be underestimated. I mean, I think in the book I mention the fact that uh, the sort of Johannesburg and Tswane, those two municipalities combined, actually have the fourth biggest economy in Africa, if, if it was a country. That's not small fry to give up. Uh, if you think about the patronage networks that have been built in those places, um, people clearly have a vested, had a vested interest in keeping it. Uh, now, this doesn't mean that six months down the line there is some kind of, you know, we, we did see the attempt to make the Western Cape ungovernable a couple of years ago. There was open discussion about this. So, again, I think my position is is sadly right down the middle that I'm, I, I, I think probably based on the evidence we have, I lean towards believing that they will give up power. But definitely it won't be a smooth process and with a significant downside risk that what you fear may come to pass. All right. I mean, I would agree with you that when you make the statement such is the ANC did give up power, Johannesburg, Twani, um, and Nelson Mandela Bay as well. Uh, so they did move away a little bit. But I, my hesitance in using that as an example is they still run Gauteng and they still run Eastern Cape. And it's kind of like – you you don't own the school teachers anymore, or you don't employ the school teachers anymore, but you still own the school, um, and or still run the school. So they haven't really given up the economy because they still run Gauteng, and and I think a lot of the funding goes through that. And and from what I can see in terms of Joburg and Twane, in terms of what the DA uh, has been capable of and hasn't been capable of, and even where their failings are, um, it's very much on. Stuff that actually matters to people, I would argue. So how cities run and, and just efficiency, really. Um, whereas running provinces seems to be where the real power exists. Um, and in fact, if we want to move towards a more federalist type of system, uh, then real power is, is within the premiership of, of each, of each province. Um, and I, I think that that has been exercised to some extent by you know the the premier league and 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 certain of jacob zuma's allies we're seeing uh supra up in northwest uh coming under attack now but uh you know it's separate separate discussion but but i think it's part of the the greater the greater picture so i i don't know i i, I think i hear your points on that i hear ramon's uh uncertainty yeah it's like the small concessions the cities but let's say mm. there's like a real uh a real threat to their power at a, at a provincial level or a national mm. level. I mean, that could yeah, be no, a different I, I agree that it's, it's a different ballgame, mm. especially at the national level and, and probably also provincially in Gauteng. But mm. I would just maybe push back a bit and say sure. the difficulty, if you think about a place like Johannesburg, I mean, uh, so the way the constitution divides functions, I mean, cities do have a lot of power. And especially if you can get onto the mayoral committee, I mean, you have control over massive budgets for roads, for community safety, etc. So just imagine being an ANC councillor who has served under Parks Tau on the mayoral committee mm. for the last five years. Lose. I mean, you lose access to a lot of potential patronage. So I agree with you. I think yeah. that that's possibly part of the thinking that, you know, we can sort of control the thing from, you know, a, a level above um, and, and maintain our influence. But at least, you know, if you know you have people, it's been demonstrated that ANC candidates are willing to kill for their positions. Mm. Getting them to you know, sort of go away and, and give away access to a lot of money, uh, even at a city level, is significant. But I totally do hear what yeah. you're saying. So let's talk more about their, their, their thinking, their, the sort of uh, view, you know, because if you're in ANC, uh, certainly before 2016, 
your view is what Jacob Zuma said, uh, which is the ANC will rule until Jesus comes. And that's, that sounded like, you know, a very verbose thing to say and, and uh, it's ridiculous. And of course it's coming from him and all of that. But the reality is, is if you speak to ANC members, uh, just normal party members, they will tell you, listen, dude, who's going to take over? Like we are it. We are the party that liberated this country. The average person knows that. Um, the average person identifies very deeply with that. And the average person is teaching their kids that, not to mention that our school curriculum very much has been, you know, history written by the victors. So what is it, what is it going to take, do you think, to get the ANC to act like an opposition? Because in the places they've been beaten so far, I'm seeing what, what Ramon's saying. You know, they, they, they go, they go, oh, well, um, Joburg, there's three billion rand in, in, in stolen money, you know, and then you're like, yes, guys, that was three billion rand in the 2015, 2016 budget, the one you presided over, right? They don't even realize that, but they, that's how they play. They, they play sort of this, we think we're still in power, um, and we're going to try, attack from that perspective and and something uh, the DA gets right sometimes and the EFF gets right sometimes is being a good opposition um, understanding what that means to not be in power but to shake power uh, so how does the ANC reset yeah I think that there's a couple of great points in there so um, I, I think you know the ANC sometimes the way they talk it's like this is a very temporary thing and, you know, six months from now we're going to be back to 60% and, you know, or two-thirds. So I, I definitely get the same impression. So um, two things there. The first one you mentioned about Jacob Zuma saying, uh, you know, we'll rule until Jesus comes back. I think it's very uh, – uh, it's a very good point to pick up on. It's something that I explore but in the book as well because, yes, it's absurd, but it's also true. When you think about the, the, the mentality that has been shaped by one party dominance and the idea that the ANC has this monopoly on legitimacy, uh, there are many ANC members who believe it. But I would go a step further and I would say most opposition supporters believe the same thing. And dare I even say the people in this room believe the same thing, all three of us perhaps. So the, the reason yeah, I we'll say – We'll talk that, about percentages just now and then we probably come to the same conclusion. <clears throat> right. So, so the, the reason I say that is because – we have uh, not through any fault of our own necessarily. We have looked at the world through a lens that has been shaped by one party dominance. And again, this goes back further than the ANC. I think most people, who, if they still exist, who would have voted for the National Party before 1994. Uh, I think the shift between the National Party and the ANC was made easier in the sense that, well, we're going from one dominant ideology to another. I think it would have been very interesting if you imagine a counterfactual where you know, a coalition takes over in 94, you know, a, a, a coalition of sorts did take over, but one where, like, you know, power was more evenly distributed. So I think we all need to sort of interrogate our, the way we look at the future and sort of the assumptions that are there, either to say the ANC will just remain, we don't need to worry about it, uh, we don't need to worry about com what comes next, or alternatively, even an opposition supporter who thinks that his or her opposition party is then going to become dominant once the ANC loses, it also reflects this sort of colonization of the mind if you will so that's one point the second point about the ANC and and becoming an opposition party i think uh it's just been disastrous to be honest if you know it's it goes back to cape town it goes back to the western cape and if you look at the way that they've that the, the ANC has collapsed there uh i think it you you can't avoid concluding that the shenanigans that they've you know come up with there has not helped them and and i think there's a there's a real crisis within the ANC and you see it in statements like you know, Natim Tetwa said towards the end of last year 
you know, it's defeatist to think about coalitions. So it, it shows this idea, and I, I, and I would venture to say that they probably think it's defeatist to think about what it means to be an opposition party. So the idea that it's all temporary and, you know, a couple of days later we're all going to be back to our two-thirds majority is definitely part of the problem. And But look, I want to say that this this discussion shouldn't only be about Hammering the ANC. I think because we're all sort of complicit in this, in this, this narrative, we're all influenced by the idea that there's one dominant party. I think we should try to convince our colleagues in the ANC, our friends in the ANC, the people we know who support the ANC, that it's good for everyone once we start thinking about what comes next. It does, it's not defeatist. For you to be an effective opposition party is the way you come back into power. For you to work effectively in coalitions is the way you remain in power. Once you lose your 50%. So I think that's a conversation that needs to be part of this. Uh, but yeah, as to the, the performance up to date, it doesn't inspire confidence. Yeah. Well, I keep saying, you know, uh, the ANC is like a house of cards. Once you take away patronage, boom, you know, there's no core ideology holding that thing together. So the greatest reset for them is to lose power, reset, get some principles in place. And then, and then work on those. And then they would, I'm sure they would be back in power in no time. I mean, that's what. Well, I think that's how democracy is supposed to work. Exactly, right? exactly. You, you, I mean, when you lose, that's a, a condition to reset and go again. So let's talk about coalitions firstly. So in terms of South Africa, at least the DA has the most experience with this. I read Helen Zitter's autobiography. I think there were like nine parties in, in Cape Town. Seven. Seven, seven yeah. in just just in Cape Town, yeah. I believe, yeah. and she held that together for years, for, for five, five years, five, five, five years, yeah. and I mean that is quite astounding. Firstly, but secondly, the amount of experience the DA has in these sort of things is must be very beneficial to them. Now, recently, the EFF has had okay, they don't say they're in coalitions, they're in voluntary. Well, it's minority governments essentially, right? That they help to prop up, right? In 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 two municipal in in Joburg and Twane, and then. In uh, Nelson Mandela Bay, the DA is in coalition with a few other parties, not the EFF. So the EFF and the DA seems to seem to have a bit of experience in this. Uh, ideologically, I don't see how they can sustain that for a very long time. To me, it makes more sense for the ANC and EFF to get in bed together, which might happen in 2019. Uh, so here's the problem. DA has fundamental experience. The other two are far more ideologically inclined. So coalition depends where it goes could be very good or very bad yeah again i think this there are two points i'd like to touch on and and apologies if if i launch into a bit of a thing here because i'd like to talk about the scenarios that i that i sketch in the book so uh in the first instance um the i think it's i think it i think we can't argue against the fact that the da is by far the best place to take advantage of any place where the anc falls below 50 percent. so it's no accident that the ANC lost out in Joburg and Tswane and Nelson Mandela Bay. Uh, it's not that the DA got a majority. It's that they out-negotiated the ANC. And so this comes from a foundation that goes back 15, uh, 15 years where not only – and I'll talk about the Cape Town story because I think it's very pertinent. But the party itself is – you know they grew through alliances. They grew through compromising with – the independent Democrats, for example. So uh, that experience on the one hand matters, but then the governance experience, you know, the seven party coalition in Cape Town. Uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. And whatever you think about Helen Zeller's politics uh, and the people around her, the fact that they were able to keep that thing together and not only keep it together, but actually make Cape Town a better place 
is really is really extraordinary. And so, just to take you back there for a moment, I mean, this was we had a, a coalition of sorts with the government of national unity after ninety four, and I have a chapter on that in the book to look at how the NP, the ANC, the IFP worked together after they'd been fighting each other for so many years. So that on it that that it's that on its own is is an interesting and important story. The difference be, there being that they didn't really need each other. The ANC had its majority, so that's why also why it collapsed uh, two years in. So if you look at Cape Town as sort of the first real sort of high stakes coalition. Uh, initially, the ANC, and it's funny, it has echoes with Nelson Mandela Bay recently. The ANC uh, thought they had it wrapped up. Uh, there's a great piece by Gareth von Onselen that, um, that, that we should all read about how they actually put together this uh, coalition where the ANC thought they had the independent Democrats on their side and they needed one of the other sort of six small parties to just back them and they'll keep control of the city. And the day before, essentially, the, the, the DA stole it from them and sealed the deal with six other opposition parties and they came into power with a one-seat majority. Now, this is as flimsy as it can get. Um, they, they ran that government for about a year before old buddy Shaban from the African Muslim Party decided that he's, this is not his golden ticket, so he decided to switch sides, go to the ANC, and according to Helen Ziller's autobiography, sort of become the person in charge of the World Cup and all the contracts that go with that. So, you know, again, the ANC thought, here's our moment, they're going to collapse the coalition. But then in the meantime, the DA had uh, brought the independent Democrats on board because the backlash against Patricia DeLille for siding with the ANC in uh, 2006 was massive and the ANC, the DA exploited that and rather than collapsing the coalition a year in they ended up with a bigger majority and that took them through to 2011 so and in that process you know despite all the clashes and the style issues and the patronage issues that inevitably come up they managed to actually deliver and that's why the DA you know they 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 took that message and said well it was actually us and then they They've got their majority. So in many ways, a textbook example of how you want to do it. So from there, going to the question of, uh, you know, cooperation, um, I think so the, the most likely scenario, and I still believe this that I have in the book, if the ANC falls below 50 percent, either in Gauteng or nationally or in some other province, Northwest, we shouldn't discount and potentially even Kuzul Natal is a minority government scenario, which is the same thing we have in Joburg and Swane. Uh, so we have evidence uh, that the EFF will back a DA candidate, but refuse to form a formal coalition, which will then, you know, hold them, sort of uh, lock them up within whatever that government is doing. So let's, if we think through what that means, if we have a national minority government, I argue that probably the EFF, if this is the route we go, will do the same thing and sort of nominate the DA to be, to set up their government. But then it's going to be a nightmare to govern in the same way that it is a nightmare to govern under minority governments in the cities because you can do some things for which you have executive powers. So economic policy is one important place. I think South Africa's economy would look better under a DA-led minority government. I think our foreign policy would look more like a liberal democracy. But then if you come to the fundamental structural issues in South Africa, they would need to build majorities for every single legislative change. So if you talk about labor laws, for example, or let's take the minimum wage issue. If they want to change the minimum wage so that there are these exemptions for people who have been unemployed for a long time, they would need, you know, let's say they have 30%. They would need 20% from somewhere else. And that opens up – and since you don't have a formal coalition, that opens up the world of what the Americans call pork barrel politics mm. where you may have a minimum wage law, but then it says something about, you know, 
platinum miners in the northwest get a 50% increase in their minimum wage, which would then in that, you know, take that example would be a concession directly to an EFF mm-hmm. constituency, which is almost unrelated to the legal change yeah. you're making. And so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a corruption risk that goes with that. But more than anything, that scenario, which I think is the most likely, um, will be sort of it will be we'll probably take two steps forward and one step back throughout you know if you have a five year government like that assuming that it lost yeah I, look i mean the the prospect of a parliament that doesn't legislate even if they don't take away some of the bad laws but they don't pass any new ones uh, is just fantastic to me uh, you know i uh, i occasionally log on to parliament's website and i see the bills on the floor basically uh, that they want to make into acts and it is terrifying um, it, it, it is actually terrifying the things that these idiots think they need to interfere with. Uh, a quick example of an, an area I was uh, involved in until a short while back is in South Africa, first aid training was uh, administered by companies who registered with the Department of Labor. They proved uh, relatively easily that they could uh, provide this training. They were either paramedics or doctors or nurses. They showed that experience. They showed they had the right equipment and, the, and a textbook and basically there you go. There you can you can go and teach people first aid. Uh, this has worked perfectly fine for uh, <laughs> decades, uh, and uh, Parliament decided no, no, no. Uh, we're going to change this, and we're going to move the purview of this under the Health and Welfare CETA. Uh, and unfortunately, the Health and Welfare CETA doesn't know what they're doing in this regard, uh, and so it's basically going to fall apart, number one. And what what's also happening is that small players who are being forced to switch, for which it costs hundreds of thousands of rands to do with no guarantee because, uh, you know, the process is inverted comma six weeks, and I know people who have taken six years to get through it with uh, points that it gets to where you must give guys bribes and things like that. So so they've destroyed this entire uh, microeconomy um, with a stupid bill that never needed to exist. So the concept that, that bills might not get passed, brilliant. <laughs> Ramon? Yeah, so uh, there's an anarchist that I know, well, not personally, called Michael Malice, and he looks at polarization, political polarization all over the world. And he's look, he spoke about the U.S. with Trump. He spoke about Eastern Europe, uh, Germany. The increased political polarization is a great thing. Because 99% of the time, Parliament never repeals laws. It just creates new ones. And nine, and many of those laws are utter shit. So polarization is actually a very good thing, politically. Well, if you have, if you have a system in place which is somewhat functional, because then you can protect the system from the new laws that you don't like. What if you have a dysfunctional system in which you could only fix it by changing the laws? So that's the other side of what you're saying. Look, we would need, you want the DA to make this economy better. You have to repeal some of our labor legislation because people just don't employ because of the legislation we have. I know that's very difficult for some people to seemingly understand, but that's the way it works. People don't invest for some of the the legislation that we have on the books. Yeah, I mean, you need to change um, the tax code. You need to change this, this fundamental structural reforms that are necessary entrepreneurship. To, get, to get the economy going. To start a company. And no one is going to do it unless the hegemony of the political power is mm. broken. Yeah. All right. So, so that's a bit of a side conversation, but um this 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 idea of of minority sort of uh government government and the EFF let's talk about them do you think they've missed a trick so to speak in that uh not throwing their lot in with the 
DA. I, I can see how they went. Well, the ID threw their lot in with the mm. DA and they no longer exist. Yeah, they got swallowed right? up. Right. Um, I don't think the EFF would ever get swallowed up unless they were willing. Some of their members might be willing to embrace some of the DA ideology because I don't think that a lot of EFF members are very married necessarily. Julius certainly is. Floyd is, you know, people at the top, but oh. the lower levels may be willing to buy into liberalism. Um, but, they may have looked at it, we don't want to die. Um, but on the other side of things, they can't take any responsibility now, really, for anything that goes right. So if citizens in Johannesburg feel off come the next election that things are going well, you know, things are really good here, um, they're likely to put their, their tick or their cross next to the DA and not next to the EFF, specifically because the EFF has taken almost no ownership. Yeah, I, I think that is that is exactly right, and uh, it shows the calculation that went into this. I, I, I think, um, to their credit, I think they probably thought this through strategically. And from what I know about the negotiations prior to the forming these governments in 2016, um, the EFF didn't just decide on a whim. They, I think, they did think through some of the implications. Uh, but as with any decision, I mean, it, it <laughs> there are always the things you don't know and how things might turn out. So, I, I, I think. The EFF's bigger game with 2016 was probably to wait until 2019. Um, and I, and I, and I, th- that's why it's probably no accident that we've seen them play both sides. So yes, they've, um, they've not only voted for DA governments, uh, at least, you know, to put them in power, if not supporting their agenda in these, in Johannesburg and Swane, but they've also not brought, you know, realistic motions of no confidence. So. In a very cynical worldview, you can imagine, you know, if you, if you really want to give them credit, maybe Malema knew Trollope wouldn't go, right? Because you know, it's a it's a it's a show. I don't want the ANC there, especially if the ANC doesn't want to give me the candidate I want. So why, you know, the Patriotic Alliance said a very interesting thing when they decided to go with the DA. They said the EFF never called them to ask, "Are you going to support our motion to remove Trollope?" Now that's either utter incompetence or you're self-sabotaging. So I'm just saying that. I think they're playing both sides, and then clearly we should talk about how they, you know, the, the cooperation between the ANC and the EFF um, has, you know, it's it, it, it's it probably makes that scenario more likely. If, if there was an election tomorrow and the ANC falls below 50 in Gauteng or wherever, they'd probably go with the EFF based on what we know today. Mm. But then if you think about the land issue, which clearly is the basis upon which they've they've made this decision to move closer to the ANC – I think the ANC has opened a very, very dangerous door. I mean, we, we have taken the first steps down the road to ruin. Let's, let's not beat around the bush. If we go with the EFF idea of land expropriation, uh, and it's all become state owned and, you know, that is, that is the road to ruin. However, technically they still need to decide whether they're going to do that. So let's imagine in August the ANC's caucus or whatever decides that maybe this isn't such a brilliant idea. And even if they change the constitution, but they don't give the EFF what it wants. So it, it, they somehow find a compromise. I don't know what it would look like, but they say we're not going to have full state ownership. We're not going to nationalize, but we're going to change the constitution. We're going to tinker with it a bit so that we can take land that we think isn't being used, blah, blah, blah. If that happens, I guarantee you the EFF is going to be furious. I mean, they're going to pick up that mantle and say the ANC sold you out again. We, this, they did not give you the expropriation without compensation, actually, that we've been arguing for. So, in August or whenever this is supposed to you know, come to a head, 
things might change dramatically. Uh, you know, then the EFF goes into 2019, probably opposing the ANC even more vociferously than, than before, because now, now Zuma and Ramaphosa are sold out. Uh, so it's just, uh, it's just an example of how fluid things are. You know, you can imagine the opposite example. Maybe the ANC does give the EFF what it wants. And then we're in serious trouble in this country. Then we're recording this from Antarctica. <laughs> Very simple. Yeah. <laughs> Please, man. The, the sunny beaches of Mauritius. So All right. Perfectly Sorry. fine. Sorry. Well, but I mean, imagine, let's, let's think about that for a second. So we get the full on Marxist EFF vision. As bad as that is for the economy, it's probably also terrible for the EFF. Because then the ANC did the thing that they were promising all along. And going into the next election, what exactly does the EFF have that's different? Unless they just join the ANC again and they have I mean, I would love to humiliate the EFF, but that price is just so fucking high. (laughs) If it's about nationalization, everything, and the EFF is humiliated, no. I think the point point I'm trying to make is that DA-EFF cooperation, we have actual data that shows that it happened, even if it's just for minority government. We have no data point where the EFF actually did support the ANC to take over a government somewhere. And we, but we, at the same time, we have clear evidence that there's, you know, conversations and a sort of warming yeah. in the relationship. And so what to make of that? I think it's simply too early and we're going to have to see how things play out towards, um, towards the next election. It's a very unsatisfactory answer, but I think both of those, you know, if you think about coalition teaming, coalitions teaming up in 2019, I think it's too early to dismiss the idea of a DA, EFF coalition, yeah. broadly well, speaking. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Sorry, Jonathan. I mean, um, if you told anyone six months ago, Zuma will be in the dock, yeah. Ramaphosa will be president, and the Guptas will be fleeing justice, you'll be like, whatever. You, you'll call that man a liar. But it happened within weeks, yeah. right? And Ramaphoria, the same thing. There's Ramaphoria for a month or two. Now it's dissipated quite a lot. Who knows what will happen within the next six months? Yeah, and I mean, imagine looking back from August, and, and you know, I have my doubts about whether the ANC will end up with a with a good policy on land. But imagine looking back from August, and the ANC sort of reaffirms a commitment to private property, although they tinker a bit with expropriation rules. Yeah, and then we look back to February, and we go. Wow, that was hard to imagine given the speeches that everyone's giving in parliament about, you know, this is the re- moment for revenge and whatever. So, mm. you know, just that's just a sign of how th- quickly things can change. All right. And I just want to point out what I think is the reason for this fluidity and, and the inability to predict things, which is leadership. So you, you have, uh, you have someone like, like, uh, Zuma. Um, certainly I think everyone predicted that had he stayed until 2019, even if he had signaled his intention to go and even had, uh, someone like Ramaphosa taken over, not, uh, his ex-wife, um, then it still would have damaged the ANC quite a lot. And I, I know several people have predicted that the ANC does better now than they would have done prior to that. So that's, that's the, the Zuma Ramaphosa example. Um, Ramaphosa, I think we're still figuring out where he stands as a president because it's very difficult to say uh, what he represents, uh, where he's coming from, what his ideology yeah. now is. Um, so that's the, you've got uncertainty. So Zuma's gone. You've got uncertainty from Ramaphosa. Then you've got a leader in Julius Malema on the far left, basically, third largest party. Um, we'll have to see whether they grow or not, whether the growth is substantial or the loss is substantial. Um, but this is a man who I think has 
completely outed himself as what he is. He, mm. He's pretty hateful and bigoted. Mm. Uh, I think he's, he's, he's a racist. I think that's obvious. Well, um, and I think to, you should use the word fascism. Uh, well, I'm going to get to fascism. I'm going to get to fascist now yeah. because I think you can be a racist and not a fascist. Right, right. Uh, so I think he's a racist and a fascist. Yeah. I think he's shown that that's how he believes things should run. Um, and he's also now going to be fighting off a legal challenge. He better hope Dalian Pofu is as good an advocate as everyone thinks he is, which in my opinion he isn't. Um, uh, Harry Nell will kill Mpofu in court. Um, but Metaphorically, please, let's not um, get, get into hate no speech. Throats here. Yeah, no, no slitting throats here. No, we wouldn't uh, ever slaughter the EFF yet. Um, <laughs> but but um, the, 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 so we've got that. That's the leader of the far left. And then sort of uh, – on some days in the middle, on some days slightly center right, on some days slightly center left, you have um, 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 Musi Maimani, and these are the three gentlemen, by the way, on the, on the cover of your book. Um, and look, we we don't we don't rate Musi as a great leader. We don't rate any of them. Uh, to be no, fair, no, we don't rate any of them. I, I think I've listed reasons why quite quite succinctly so far. Um, is is this is this a major leadership issue? You, you know, you you looking at something like this um, coalition for five years that Helen Ziller ran, mm. and for whatever you think about Helen Ziller, she seems to be an unbelievable political player, and quite the leader because. People might not like her and they might disagree with her, but she certainly gets people to follow her, those under, under her. Um, and I don't think any of these three gentlemen quite have that. Um, so what do you think about, about leadership and its role in this fluid nature and, you know, all you've said in your book? Yeah. Without a doubt, the biggest leadership vacuum that is if, – if we, if we entertain the hypothesis that it's a leadership vacuum that's creating fluidity – the, the biggest um, blame goes to the ANC. So, you know, if the ANC had its house in order, we wouldn't have to worry about what's, what's KwaZulu-Natal going to do. Are they really going to vote against their own party because they, you know, they want to defend Zuma, which is something we have to entertain at this point. Uh, if the ANC had real leadership and had its house in order, we wouldn't have to worry about Ace Mahashule running around and Supra and all the chaos that's going on in Northwest. We wouldn't have to worry about David Mabuza being our deputy president and potentially sabotaging any idea of, of reform. Um, so the blame goes, I think, first of all, to the NC. And again, it's, no, no, this is the double-edged sword of being the dominant party. You control everything and therefore everything flows from your dominance. And we, you know, the opposition are, are, are certainly in a more difficult position than they were a year ago. But even that is determined by what's happening within the ANC. So I think first and foremost, the fluidity in, the, in South African politics comes from the ANC. And this is also a way to say that in some parallel universe where the ANC sorts itself out, then a lot of the fluidity would go away, including with the opposition parties, because, you know, they would be they would know where they stand. And I, I think just that's the fundamental point right now. No one knows where they stand. Um, Musi Maimane and the DA. So, again, I like to look at the data first before we go anywhere. And, you know, the data on the ANC, there's a graph. I don't remember which page it is, but I encourage you to just flip through it, which shows the ANC's electoral support, just basic, and how it has declined and how the pattern has shifted, whereas previously they got like 10%, 8 to 10% more in every national election than compared to the previous municipal one. And that pattern has almost flipped around, and it has flipped around recently. So, just looking at the data and saying this is going down, how do we explain, you know, and how does leadership figure into it? 
Musi Maimani grew the party in 2016 significantly. He was the leader. Now, whether you attribute that to Musi Maimani is a different question, right? But I think that is the most powerful weapon that is currently on his side is, is that he can show. And I think you saw this with, with no leadership challenge at the Congress. Uh, people felt, you know, if we're going to get rid of someone, we need proof that it's actually going south. So if you think about things like uh, the polling that recently showed the DA at, I think, 24.5% nationally. This was a Business Day article. The discussion around that was, you know, this is very bad for the DA. They, they went from 27 in uh, 2016, and now they're polling at 24.5. Clearly that, you know, if that's what they end up with, then I think there's going to be serious, serious trouble in the DA. However, again... We're sort of a year out from the election. To me, what that signals is something quite the opposite, which is that the DA's base today is 24.5% in South Africa. Now, if you had said that 10 years ago, they would have chased you away and, you know, be banned because it's impossible. And so if things are this bad, and indisputably they are bad with Patricia DeLille, um, I think the water thing – you know, politically, it's fallen on the DA, but I think there's, that story has still to be told about what actually happened there. But yes, let's add that to the list. Um, these and, and then, you know... Helen Zilla's tweets. Helen Zilla's tweets, whatever, ideological incoherence that we see. Sure. I think all of those things are real. But if they are real and they still mean that 245 almost a quarter of the electorate will still vote for the DA despite that... Things might look very different a year down the line, assuming that they're able to sort out these issues. Now, it seems like Patricia DeLille's days are finally going to be numbered very soon. So, yes, I think it's been a very difficult period. Mm. I think there has been indecision. I think there has been a lack of coherence, certainly ideologically. But we know people like Gwen and Gwenya have come into the party. And, you know, I, I think it's no oh, mistake. She's hammering Peter Bruce. It's fantastic. <laughs> well… But, I don't think it's a mistake that she was brought in. I think it was a yeah. masterstroke to bring her in. Absolutely. But it's only the DA that suffers from this, though. Absolutely. Uh, as we said to Tony Leon, the DA is the most scrutinized party because of the incoherence. But they're all incoherent. Well, well so, I, they so also so the EFF. I, sorry. Yeah, sure. And, um, I mean, except for the EFF, which is one issue. Yeah. And they, they will rise and fall on one issue. The ANC has no coherence whatsoever. And, Despite them killing each other, sending billions to Dubai, doing every single thing that they do, they're still polling at 58, 59%. So maybe it's the, you know, electorate that needs a bit of a wake up call, right? <laughs> Even in the leadership we get, uh, you know, based on, on, on what people actually well, want. Well, you, you get what you vote for, exactly. right? Exactly. So- also, I, you know, you list those issues, and, and I am part of the DA base. I'm still deciding whether they're going to get my vote in 2019. Uh, because it's very the, important on, they get your vote, John. Well, but the point is, is you can multiply me over because mm. I am very much part of part of their, their base. And uh, I don't care about the Patricia DeLille issue. In fact, I, the, the, the sooner she goes, the better. Uh, the fact that there's a communist in the party should have been a problem from day one. So she never embraced the DA's ideology. She's not a liberal. And uh, if she goes, I couldn't care any less. If she stays, that's fine too, as long as she toes the line. It's clear, it's clear to me uh, at some level she hasn't towed that line. Um, and she's probably uh, done something wrong. Um, I don't, it's not clear what that is. Uh, it's not it, well, and I think there is there is, lies part of the problem. Sure, sure. I think we all have an intuitive sense that there was something wrong. Yeah, but we haven't seen the well, message. Well, but this, what is, exactly this, is, is, this wrong. is the DA's problem, right? They try to play, play both sides instead of going to their base. Look, we realised you couldn't care less about Patricia Delille. Mm. Uh, those of you who were independent Democrats and came to the DA either have embraced the DA and will continue voting us forever, 
or or you, you I don't like the word forever well <laughs> for an extended period at least um and uh, the the rest of the rest of you either couldn't care or or have moved on anyway um i i don't know why they can't just go look this this woman is bad this is why we think she's bad she's out she's gone she's she's done and yes we did change rules at our uh, at our national convention to get rid of her because she's bad and we want to make sure that bad actors can't be part of our organization they need to stop dilly-dallying with these things they need to say this is where we stand on an issue uh, you know they came out on uh, expropriation without compensation and they stood firm on that issue that makes someone like me in the base want to say that's it you get my vote because i know you're going to protect private property rights you stand as liberals yeah. um whereas whereas uh, on other issues it's just it's just uncertain it's as uncertain as the anc who seems to sway from the center to the left and it's uh, it's just very disconcerting and i i don't think they've got control of the messaging and and i would argue a year you talk about a year before the election it's very clear that every other party has their messaging for 2019 perfectly packaged as if they've been to a very large pr agency in the city bowl of cape town and they've sat there for a couple of days and one of these one of these ad/pr agencies has said to them right the anc your messaging for 2019 is a little bit of racism again the whites are bad um and push the land thing but also you're fixing the country because look here Cyril mm. okay that, that's their messaging for 2019 and it's very clear that's their messaging um, the EFF's messaging is singular and, and has been singular for a while now it's land and it's revenge mm. it's, re- it's land for revenge um, that is the 2019 messaging uh, we, we saw this for 2016 this is not new this type of political messaging um, our media are very slow to pick up on that it's political messaging not necessarily what they mean um so how does the da get into uh, a coalition with the with the eff after the eff spends months before the 2016 election saying the most atrocious things about them well this is their strategy i have no idea what the da strategy for 2019 is and i think gwen is making that clearer Mm. but it's not clear yet yeah I, i i don't disagree with that i think it's i think well, I think the most optimistic thing you can say is that hopefully that process is now in, has started in earnest of putting together the, the campaign package. And I, and I do think it's a bit late. I agree with you on that. I would just say again, you know, the land issue is the, is the number one thing. And we really need to see what happens exactly with what is exactly the proposal that's going to come out of this exercise. Because if you imagine a scenario where the ANC and the EFF agree that they want to go full Marxist here, I mean, that's a gift to the DA. They don't even need to think about it because then their only thing they need to communicate is we're going to protect private property rights. So in that scenario, a lot of the other things that you mentioned, for better or for worse, falls away, right? If it becomes more complicated and you have the ANC and the EFF sort of fighting about what exactly they want, you know, potentially, you know, I think in a way this land thing ends up being good politically for the DA almost any way you slice it because if the ANC doesn't go full Marxist, then the DA says, but... Why did we've been saying it all along, mm. right? We've been saying all along that you can't take fundamentally with private property. Yeah. Um, you can just use the constitution anyway. Yeah, we've, I mean, and we've, yeah, and you've inserted two clauses that do effectively make no fundamental change that infuriates the EFF, but it vindicates the DA. So, 
I th- it's 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 amazing and kind of disconcerting that we have such a one issue dominated discussion. And there is a question to be asked about whether voters really fundamentally care this much. And they I know don't. Tony Leon said one percent of people, and it's in the well, race lo- relations. A, surveys, a lot right? of different surveys say that yeah. they really don't care. So that, but that's kind of a separate discussion. Sure. I, th- uh, I think it's clear that most parties view this as the one issue that will define their campaign to some extent. Um, so it's it's just it's just amazing how we have this one issue, and then we have this sort of world of different scenarios that could actually still materialize, even though I think in our bones, a lot of us are concerned about what's going on. Uh, and again, we are, we have taken those first steps. And I think that's, you know, what, however this plays out, we have to go back and look at what incentivized us to take these steps, even if we end up not messing with the constitution. Um, I did want to briefly address uh, what you said, Ramon, about, you know, again, this, this, this inability to break free almost from, the dogma and and this notion that and i think the way to look at it the way i certainly look at it is that south africa lives under if you want to call it political correct or a dogma or a dominant ideology let's call it that um and in part that is or in major part that is the result of that party who the party who dis who, who believes that ideology and that agenda has total power so that reinforces it. And so then the question is to break the cycle and, and to sort of open up even the world of ideas and that we can have civil discussions about disagreements without calling each other racist every time or, you know, just dismissing everything. We either need, we need a new, we need to, to defeat this dominant dogmatic ideology. But in order to do that, the dominant party needs to go out of power. And for the dominant party to go out of power, you need to defeat the dogmatic ideology. And to me, this is this is sort of the central problem uh, that needs to be fixed somehow in South Africa. And I think w- w- however it's fixed, what comes next are the coalitions. Um, and so I think that's the sort of cycle we're caught up in. But however the way that it actually breaks, when it breaks, if it breaks, <laughs> we're going to end up with a very radically different country. And suddenly ideas like let's take the minimum wage exemptions, which now are just dismissed, again, as racism or whatever. Suddenly, because there's no one dogmatic, powerful party that's able to enforce its view, you will see people popping up in the media and looking more nu- at, in more nuanced ways at this. So in a way, a lot of the other ills that go, um, that, that we currently experience in South Africa, so much of it is connected to this idea fundamentally that one group sets the agenda, one group is legitimate, and everyone else is either reactionary or, you know, illegitimate. Right, right. And it would help immensely. And here's another failure on on, on our part. Uh, the, the media has swallowed, as Tony Leon says, the transformation narrative, they swallowed it whole. Exactly. Um, we, we, you know, we, we fight with editors all day long on, on Twitter about this. And like, just because we disagree on a fundamental point, it doesn't make us wrong. It doesn't make us racist. It doesn't make us apartheid apologists. Minimum wage is wrong for these reasons. Here's the evidence for it. Here's the precedent set. In a country with 30% unemployment, 50% of those that are under tw- uh, 25 years old who have no skills whatsoever, you're pricing them out of the workplace with the minimum wage. It is that simple. And to assume that this is racist as an editor of a major newspaper is ridiculous. But... I don't know what is being taught in universities. I don't know what is being taught in, 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 in basic, very basic education. But everyone has, uh, the ANC lives in our mind. Mm. 
like you cannot believe it's a yeah. parasite that has infected even the minds of middle class people and even the richest CEOs in this country believe it. The virus of transformation is so prevalent and the yeah. only way to fight that is for the ANC to lose power. I fully agree. I, I hear that. So I just want to – there's a point Ramon just alluded to and a point which was buried in, in what you said before, which is however we get there, you know, coalitions is where we end up. I, I, I don't fundamentally disagree with that. My question is the process of us getting there. Mm-hmm. So you you are a doctor of political science. You um, – are involved with research with Stanford. Um, uh, sorry, apologies, Princeton. Wrong universe, wrong Ivy League. Um, don't worry, it's it's still good. <laughs> They're all extremely good. offended. Right? <laughs> um, sorry, Princeton's East Coast, uh, uh, Stanford's West Coast. That's eh? right. Um, so, the, the you are looking at this, and 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 I imagine one of the things we need to look at is educating people. Mm. Um, because the only way you get people to get out of this sort of rut of this type of thinking is hopefully through education. So w- how is that targeted? What what are the sort of evidence show from a political science perspective? At which point do you target people? Is it primary school, high school, university, at the voting booth? Mm. How do we do that? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a tricky one. And I, I don't think there's necessarily a, one clear answer to I guess what you mean is educating people to understand that we need a competitive political system. Is that well? I, it's everything from getting people to understand that the thing that killed the most number of people uh, purposefully last century was, was socialism and communism. Mm. Uh, that Marxism, let's call it that. That'll piss off our Marxist listeners, but that's the truth. Um, and getting them to understand that—that that if you've got something so bad last century, we should be abandoning yeah. it. It's like not wearing a seatbelt was so last century. Marxism, so last century. Um, you, you, we've, there's enough evidence. When do we teach people that? When do we teach mm. them simple things like Ramon saying, which should be straightforward. The minimum wage should translate to this is a bad idea. Um, you know, minimum wage is a bad idea. Labor legislation is a bad idea. No, but just having the conversation about it mm. is a good thing. Yeah. Not just dismissing, but I don't think, sorry to yeah. interrupt both of you. It's not about it. education, so to speak. There, there is no incentive to learn about it yeah. due to hegemony. Yeah, exactly right. And I think, um, we, we should be careful to say that by education, we mean we want to convince everyone that what we think or what I think or what you think is, is the only way to think. And I think that's exactly the problem. So maybe in a, in a strange way, we're all guilty of it again, because we've been socialized in an environment where you're either right and dominant or wrong and don't count. And I think that's part of the issue. But your, your question about how we break the cycle, I think that's, that's probably the most, that's the one where I can at least respond with a theory, perhaps. Um, the way I look at it is that, you know, political crises have always have sort of two components. There's the long run story. So if you look at the first world war, you'll find historians who give you sort of the whole build up to it. And then argue that that's, that's actually why it happened. But then on the other side, you have people who t- talk about the trigger moments. So actually, no, all of those things could have happened. But if, you know, the crown prince wasn't assassinated in Sarajevo, we wouldn't have had the first world war. And, you know, there's, you know, <laughs> massive academic arguments about those two things. But what I think is that both are true. And I think we saw both playing out in the Zuma years. So, uh, you couldn't explain the 2016 election outcomes, uh, pushing back against the ANC without if 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 the ANC had been governing South Africa in a way where people 
had gotten safer, crime was going down, poverty was declining, um, uh, unemployment was declining, education was improving. If all those things had been true, then it would have made the sting of Jacob Zuma's corruption much less potent. On the other hand, though, if you had, uh, you know, if if all those things were going wrong, but you didn't have this trigger moment, and mm. the trigger moments have names usually, right? So there's the assassination, there's Watergate, you know, there's whatever Nene, whatever Trump's going to do. Nenegate. There's Nenegate, there's state capture, there's Nkandla. You know, right. we can sum it up on our, on five fingers. Um, and those two things coalesced in a way, and this is where I think I disagree with, with a lot of people, and you're welcome to push back, but I think there's been a permanent shift in South African politics. Uh, people assume that, you know, Ramaphosa's there now, and all anti-voters are just going to go back home. Mm. I don't think that that's how it works. I think there has been a bit of a psychological opening up, which we should welcome. I think it's still, and I think maybe a lot of the vitriol that we see is people trying to actually deal with the fact that the ANC has lost legitimacy. You know, what do they say? The ANC never loved me. You know, there, there's, a, there's a kind of a psychological scar that the Zuma years have left. Uh, and so it's, and, and Winnie's death has shown that. Exactly. Now, there's right. a huge fight about did they, did they dump her? Did they want to prosecute? Exactly right. So there's a lot of, lot of angst about that. Right. As and well. sort of fundamental disagreements about, you know, whether the NC sold out or, and so I think we, we're seeing this coming to the fore. And to answer the question about breaking the cycle between, you know, a dogmatic way of thinking, reinforcing a powerful party, and there's no way to break the cycle, you need something from outside. You need something external, like corruption. Like uh, something that focuses the public mind in a way that negates the power of that cycle, that negates, that makes almost that ideology seem less important than the fact that all of our money is being shipped to Dubai. And that makes, and that makes people realize my life has gotten worse over the last decade, which it indisputably has. The, uh, the Institute of Race Relations has shown how things improved basically for the first couple of years for most ANC voters. Mm -hmm. But the cycle has definitively turned around. And so putting those two things together, I think, has, has created one opening in the cycle. I'm not sure if it's the definitive break, and that's why I'm not quite saying that the ANC will lose the national election in 2019. I think it's probably feeling much better about that prospect now. But I think we should also not assume that it's going to get its 66% back overnight and possibly never again mm. because there has been sort of a crack in how that cycle has operated very successfully for them for a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, anti support is, there's a strong correlation between living standards and anti support. Yeah. They want, they were on 70% when Tamil Becky was here, when unemployment was at the lowest, growth was 5%. It's no, it's no coincidence. No, right? and, and voters aren't stupid in the sense that they don't notice those things. Right. It's just that the public mind often needs something to focus, you know, the lived experience on. So, sure. you know, you, you know what you feel day to day and you know what you see around you day to day, but then there must be a word or a moment or a trigger that says, aha. That's, that's why. what's going wrong. That's why, yeah. yeah, and that's why service delivery prices have increased dramatically. I, think I mean, all these things go together. Day, yeah. So, I mean, so ironically, we need the, the economy to take a real dive, and then the ANC might lose in 2019. I don't think they'll lose. I mean, de de obviously, depending on numerous facts, I don't think they'll lose in 2019 by any means. But you need a real, a real trigger point being junk status and depression and all sorts of other things. Yeah. Then they might lose. So yeah. So for the ANC, I mean, that's the fundamental point. The ANC has to lose to get coalitions in where there will be political competition yeah. and there will be competition of ideas. And just the final point, maybe on that. Um, I just want to emphasize that this is no accident. It's something else that goes. 
missing in the discussion and that probably at this point is politically incorrect to say. But South Africa's electoral system was fundamentally designed to promote coalition governance. If you look at the constitution, you know, we're all fixated on section 25, rightly. But there's, there's another section that talks about the electoral system adopted by the country must result in general in proportional representation at every level. And that is as clear as you can get a rejection of the idea that we need a winner-take-all system, which is the alternative, you know, Britain being the example, United States having a version of that as well, where you have one party in government and one party in opposition, and hopefully they alternate a bit. Um, we rejected that option quite explicitly, and we said no. Every vote should count in South Africa. If you can muster 42,000 seats at the, uh, votes at this point, you get your one seat in parliament. If you get 20% of the vote, you'll get exactly 20% of the seats in parliament. And so this is how the system was set up. And it's inevitable that it will end up there unless we change the system. That's the other discussion though. But so the ANC's legitimacy, its liberation narrative has simply overpowered the tendencies of the system. And it, it has forced us to create or it has given us a false impression of the system itself. So if you look at many African countries, Kenya most recently, they many of these strong men you see around Africa have winner-take-all presidential systems, which is why things are so, you know, um, fighting to the death, quite literally sometimes, because either I win or I'm out. In South Africa, we have a system where, well, you may not get 50%, but you get a voice, and you could even be in government through coalitions. Mm. And so... This is going to happen. It's not an accident that we have this system. It's just for a long time we've been, you know, agency has overpowered the structure. But at some point, the structure will reassert itself, and then things are going to look very different from what they look like today. Okay. All right. I, I mean, I think that somewhat gets to the answer I was looking for. I just – I suppose – you know, I, we can't give everyone a copy of uh, the Communist Manifesto and the Wealth of Nations, yeah. uh, and then go. You know, figure that out. I, 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 I do think that not everyone thinks at that level of their politics. Not everyone identifies themselves as a liberal, a socialist, a yeah. But, um, I mean, that is true in democracies all over the world. Yeah, no, I absolutely. Mean, yeah, it's not but, unique, but uh, but uh, it's 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 how we get people to identify that government's the failure. And, and my biggest concern in this country is that in general, when something is failing, people go to the government to save them. Mm. They view the government as their as their, their parent, essentially. Yeah, and scapegoat um, something or someone else. Yeah, yeah well, I, you know, uh, we see this right now. Uh, they're burning Supra's house. Mm. Well, not burning his house, but they're burning buses outside his house. These are protesters burning things and, and rioting and all the rest of it uh, in the northwest because he has run that province into the ground. Mm. I was in that province a few weeks back and, and it is, it, it's not okay. It's not doing well. Uh, you can see the degradation. Um, and I was both in the city and in the, in the outlying sort of areas and townships, et cetera. Um, but the reality is they're blaming Supra. Mm. So if Supra goes yeah. and they get a new Supra, that's fine. Yeah. Just like Zuma was being blamed. Sure. And, yeah. and I think, I think that's where the fundamental shift at some point needs to happen. No, but, but it still goes back to, to, to Leon's point where it's, it's, the hegemony still stays. They just, mm. they're just rotating chairs, but the hegemony, the cultural and, uh, ideological hegemony still sure. stays. Break that. Mm. Then it won't be about just super. It will be about why is the government controlling all this stuff. Why the right? ANC, et cetera. Is, is then you'll get competition but, on I'm ideas. saying, I'm saying about, Getting the average voter to make that shift mm. is is 
is once, where, the, once, where the most difficult challenge is. I, I, I really think once there's, and I fully agree with Leon here, once the ANC goes below 50 mm. and there's competition for political positions, even ANC, EFF, mm. merge to, well not merge, have a coalition, minority coalition in, in South Africa, the EFF has, to, if they get five uh, ministerial positions, they're going to make sure that those positions work out extremely well because they need to prove themselves because they are in power. This is a chance to prove themselves. So they're going to compete against the ANC for those positions. Mm-hmm. And they're going to compete against everyone else who might want to threaten those positions. So even if okay, it's not a good scenario to have ANC EFF together by any means, no. but there'll still be competition amongst them mm-hmm. within those positions. Well, I hope so. I hope they don't just see it as an option, opportunity just to loot as well, while they're there. But I mean, that's one of the, that's exactly one of the scenarios that I, that I lay out in the book and show how you can get it. So I, I look at uh, Nepal, probably a country, we, well, I certainly didn't know, know about before I had the opportunity to go and study it. But, you know, there you have total coalition breakdown and, and it's been, it's been very, very bad for that society. And so I show in the book that an ANC-EFF coalition is the one that is most likely to go down that route. I'm not saying that's what will happen, but out of the possible scenarios, that's the one most likely to go down sort of populism, making the corruption circle bigger kind of thing. So that happened. That can happen. Um, I think if you – there's sort of this this idea of competition that Ramon raises. Uh, so the one word we haven't mentioned and which I think we have to mention is cater deployment. And so this is a little bit my other, you know, my day job is about figuring out how governments in, let's call it low capacity environments where there's a lot of corruption, poor countries are able to build functional institutions. So, you know, we are quite upset about SARS right now, rightly in South Africa and the sort of the way it's gone backwards. A lot of countries never even had a SARS. And how do you actually get a poor country like Indonesia, like Rwanda, like Tanzania, to actually get to that point where they have a functional revenue authority. That's my, that's my day job. And what you see there, time after time after time, is that any plan that comes, doesn't matter what it is, good idea, bad idea, it doesn't matter, if you don't have the capable state in there to actually implement the plan, and it's, and it's simple, I mean, this is not rocket science, you will fail. So if you look at a country like Rwanda, which where the political system is not something we should copy and where there's a lot of issues on that side. The way that they've succeeded in building a capable state is something that's frankly an example to South Africans. And I encourage everyone, if you get an opportunity, visit it because it's a fantastic country as a tourist, but also I think it will redefine your idea of what Africa is. And people argue a lot about this, and I don't like the idea that they say Rwanda is in Africa because fundamentally they've built a capable state. And that has allowed them to make unbelievable progress in the last 20 years quite authoritarian though. no i'm absolutely and but i do think maybe it's controversial i do think you can separate the two that you can build a capable state without authoritarianism and we have many counterexamples in the developed world sadly there aren't many in the developing world so i think that is probably no that is the biggest problem facing south africa is the public sector from a uh, financial point of view, I mean, it's gobbling up 36% of South Africa's budget. There's 2.7 million people working in the public sector. Their productivity is just horrendous. And that's partly why… Excuse me, I work in the public well, sector. <laughs> that's partly why Northwest looks the way that, that it looks. I mean, it's corruption has infected it. So uh, nothing personal. <laughs> um, and of course, it's not everyone, but systemically. Uh, and I think until we can fix that, none of – any of – our ideas will go anywhere. Yeah. And so coalitions might be a way to encourage the end of cater deployment, not for altruistic reasons, but the reason the ANC has been able to implement cater deployment so effectively and to our great you know, um, chagrin 
is because they've had all the power to determine who goes where. Now, once you have, let's say, a provincial government where they need to appoint, you know, different um, provincial ministers and they need to then appoint heads of department, etc. Usually the NC would just say, you know, my cousin or my uncle, whoever is important, they will get that job and whether they can do the job or not doesn't matter. Now, suddenly you're going to have other people in the room when you make that decision. Maybe there's people from the DA, maybe there's people from the EFF or even smaller parties, Freedom Front, COPE, whatever. And they're going to say, hang on, why should we just put ANC people there? First, why can't we put some of our people? That's one way that will already generate a kind of competition. And then another way in which coalitions could be very good for fixing the civil service is, and this is what Ramon mentioned, once you have parties, let's say there's, there's a small party with a ministry. Uh, the UDM has the minister for transport. Now they, maybe they have just that one ministry in a national coalition. They want to show that they're better than the other parties in that coalition because they want to keep growing. It's not like they've now arrived. They still want more influence, right? Yeah. And so therefore they may be incentivized to actually run that ministry in an effective way and not just deploy their own cadres there. And so I think that opening up of the public sector and the way that people get appointed, very basic things, um, to some extent is inevitable with coalitions as well. It doesn't guarantee that it's going to fix it. But I do believe it's going to take us one step away from the situation which we have now, is which is pretty close to the worst case scenario. Yeah, I mean, on on the I agree with you about the capable state and and a good public uh, civic service. On the other hand, the lack of a capable state has ensured that we're not Venezuela today. Yeah. Thankfully, so. I do agree. But I think I think I think it's endemic to somehow huge amounts of corruption. And a lack of civic, uh, stability or the lack of, pu- or the public service not being able to do it correctly. Yeah. But when you got malfeasant government mm. and a capable state, yeah. that is the worst scenario, yeah. of course. Yeah. But thankfully we're not there yet. But yes, a capable state and a government who actually wants to grow by doing the things that the population wants it to do. Yeah. Yes, I and, fully agree you know, with and, you. And theoretically to, to get the malfeasant government is more difficult when you have competition. And, Indeed. and someone else sitting in the room with you while you're practicing your malfeasance. And arguably it's more difficult if you have a capable state because as we see in yes. ESCOM and SARS and all that, yeah. the whistleblowers are the ones that actually came out and said this is a fuck-up happening. Yeah. And then Parliament or whoever else acts on those, you know, due to the whistleblowers, due yeah. to the good people inside and the you know, institutions. I, I don't want to mention the T word, but, you know, <laughs> Trump in the U.S. right now, he's he's losing his mind over the so-called deep state, which which doesn't exist. What he's encountering is a professional public service with norms and rules about how things are done. And he's trying to obliterate those rules and norms. And in many government departments which are struggling in the United States, you, 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 there's, a, there's been an explosion of whistleblowing. There's been a – people are pushing back. Uh, so that's what well, you get. thank goodness because no one pushed back during Obama's reign and there was lots of stuff that went that's wrong. That's a separate issue. No, no, I know. I know. I want to push back on the deep state thing because I, yeah, okay. I think, you know, it, it's, it's easy to say. But I think – the problem is, is America is also a giant bureaucracy and they, they, those, some of those rules and norms that have been established are, for example, a rule and norm whereby if you are a politically connected player, mm. um, then the law doesn't really apply to you. Uh, you, you, you know, it's, it is a separate discussion, as Ramon says, yeah. and, and we can maybe have it all well, there. And maybe the US is the wrong example. I mean, you find yeah. other countries. So I actually it's... just wanted to get into this quickly with you. We sure. don't have too much time left, but, um, I, I just wanted to chat. 
a while ago, you and I uh, had a disagreement on Twitter. I don't, I don't even remember what the disagreement was about, but I have been reminded by my host, um, my co-host. Um, basically, we were disagreeing about social democracy in Germany. I don't remember the the crux of the disagreement. It doesn't really matter, um, unless you feel it really matters. <laughs> um, you're welcome to 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 say so. Um, but if we were to say, right, you know what? The government in South Africa is really – it's 2019. Something miraculous has happened. Uh, the DA and the ANC have entered into some sort of coalition. Uh, they run half of government. Each runs a half. The DA has finally admitted that they actually have no plan with regards to education, healthcare, um, most of the sectors. They, they, they just were going along with this whole we don't agree with the ANC for very long, uh, and they really didn't have very great experts on that particular thing. This is me uh, paraphrasing because that's how I – feel. Um, the ANC has admitted that everything they've done up till now has been pretty much useless um, for the most part. And what they want to do is they want to go and copy mm. someone else. Mm. Who are we going to go copy? Mm. So, I mean, you brought up Germany and how some yeah. of Germany works. Yeah. Um, I know Canada might be brought up as an example, the Nordic countries, but I don't mm. think we've got the funding to run like a Nordic country. Yeah. Um, you know, from a freedom perspective, you could argue the USA. I think that's probably the freest country on earth. Um, Singapore is a is an example. Helen Ziller, uh, you know, pointed to. You know, you, you're the, you're the doctor of political science, so so. Yeah, well, okay. So, I still I still can't answer necessarily. You know, that's such a broad question, but sure. but we can explore it. So. I think the first point to make, and this is something else that I, I, I you know, personal experience does influence the way you see things. And uh, my my job is focused on how countries, in most cases, wh who are poorer and less developed than South Africa, manage to solve problems. And what I've one of the things that I've realized there is that we often have more to learn, even though we don't want to hear it sometimes, from countries that are further back than we like to think we are, than we have to learn from perhaps the Nordic countries. And so, you know, there's this whole thing about South-South learning and, you know, it's, some of that has already gotten an ideological smell to it as well, which I don't necessarily agree with. But I think the fundamental point is there that we should broaden the scope uh, to think about specific examples rather than sort of general models sometimes, which can be helpful. So having said that, the, ca the caveat is out there. Uh, I have a lot of experience with Germany. I got my PhD from the Free University of Berlin. So, um, I, and I think one of the things we can, you know, we could copy from Germany is the electoral system, which is something, again, uh, that people don't necessarily think about a lot, but it's central to the book. And what Germany does very briefly is to combine the proportional representation we have with direct representatives as well. So they don't have a cap on how many members of parliament they have. You can actually increase. So, that, you know, that might not be so, such a fun thing to think, but you could have 600 members of parliament where 200 of them are directly elected and the rest come from your vote for a party. So you get two votes. And then if there's, a, if there's a mismatch, if you have less directly elected people than you have proportionally, you top them up. So in this way, there are people who represent your constituency in Johannesburg or in somewhere in the free state or whatever, who you know that is my MP. But at the same time, there's perfect proportionality uh, at the sort of in the legislature, so I think that's one place where we could copy. Uh, 
and this is not a new argument. Uh, Fancel Slubert made this argument in the 2000s already, uh, or a version of it. But more broadly to our, to our disagreement on Twitter, um, if I remember correctly, it was about uh, something called the social market economy, which, um, which sounds like a bit of a paradox, and, and I concede that. However, I've, I've had the opportunity to read some of the sort of old books that came from Germany trying to reconstruct itself, West Germany trying to reconstruct itself post-Second World War. And essentially the theory of ordo-liberalism came out of writings by people like Walter Eucken. These people wrote books and they were very influential in the government. Some of them became like, you know, ministers, finance ministers, um, arguing for a model where the liberal principles come first but then combined with an undeniable need for the state in reconstructing a country that was devastated. And so that essentially is, 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 is the argument behind the social market economy. So if you want to take an example, and again, might not be perfect example, but if you want to build sort of a free economy, like, you know, let's, let's cut down on the labor laws, let's open things up, but then recognize that in the short term, there's still going to be people who won't benefit from that immediately. So then if you want to double this child support grant or even look at something like a basic income, which I've written about, those things aren't fundamentally at odds as long as they're part of a unified theory that says the market cannot be compromised to the extent that it would be under socialism. That's not what I'm talking about. But we recognize that there is an element and policies that we can adopt. And I think that's a, that's not a bad way to think about South Africa. We clearly have a lot of people who will continue to be locked out you know, even if everything tomorrow we get all the policies we want in terms of the economy, we're still going to have millions of people locked out. And thinking creatively and using the state to intervene, because I also I remember in that conversation I made the point about market failures as well, which are real things. Mm -hmm. And um, using the state to address that is not necessarily – we shouldn't exclude it completely uh, as long as that is not the fundamental guiding ideology of the state. And I think it's a subtle line. But I do think that's where Germany – and I mean the evidence is, is indisputable. I mean they, 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 they have a lot of corporatist and sort of welfare social things that maybe a liberal or a libertarian wouldn't like. But if you go to Germany and you experience the way their politics works, it's hard to argue that it hasn't been at least part of the recipe. Leon, I've got one great uh, example to show that Jonathan actually agrees with your sentiments. He drives a German car. <laughs> I don't. I drive a Japanese car, so I, I like ethno states quite a lot. <laughs> Dislike immigration, of course. Uh, but no, I mean, I agree. The, the, the binary thinking about free market versus socialism is quite old hat. You can combine these into one unified theory. It depends a lot on the culture. It depends mm. a lot on the politics. It depends a lot on the context. Yeah. In Personally, in a diverse culture such as ours, a diverse country, open up as much as possible. Uh, the market, that is, open up as much as possible. Help those people that get left behind with skills, mm. with grants. Perhaps in the short term, it is contingent, mm. shouldn't last forever. There's many ways to do it, but we are just stuck on, yeah. on, on the, the two binaries sometimes. Right. And <clears> I mean, <throat> there's, there's always the fear, at least from social policy <coughs> sides. That's my fear, right? Yeah. No. That, that line you talk about yeah, and, and, and where that line gets crossed. And yeah. I, I even think Germany might end up, unfortunately, crossing that line at some point. Now, because they've taken in two million migrants, for example, who don't seem to be becoming employed. So they are wards of the state. Yeah. Um, and I, so now you've got a socialist system that, that was sort of built in in the background, never to be a socialist system, just to help 
And uh, I don't think we necessarily disagree on that because I've always, you know, as a classical liberal said that I don't necessarily completely disagree with some sort of welfare um, to help those who are completely helpless within the society. I just, uh, my concern is, is how you control the runaway train. Right. And, but I mean, you, you could argue that the, 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 the threat to Germany that you mentioned there. Yeah. Uh, in the, to the extent that it is a threat. Mm. Um, is a separate immigration policy that has nothing to do with the economic policies that the government has very successfully implemented for a long time. So mm. you could argue that, you know, maybe there w- it wasn't, it was a well, decision that didn't align with the system you have. Yeah. I think that's what you're arguing. You, you can't, although you can't run a country, I don't want to get too deep into this, but you can't run a country and then assume that how you run your country won't attract people from other countries. So there's a reason people skipped Turkey and then went through other parts of Europe and said, no, 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 I don't want to stop here. Um, you know, uh, thank you very much, Italian immigration officials. Don't worry. Um, you can deport me. Just, just deport me north of your border because I'm actually going to Germany. That, that happened. But I mean, from a philosophical point of view, I guess the question is whether you'd be willing to sacrifice becoming a wealthy country in order to avoid the possibility that you're going to attract a lot of migrants. Yeah, it makes, uh, there's a huge incentive for migrants to go there, right? Uh, but you still wouldn't give up your quality of living yeah. in I, Germany. I, I, no. Yeah. Right? That's, that's no. the question. No, I think Merkel made a fundamental mistake in allowing millions of people without, without necessarily vetting them. And, and, and. But, I mean, it doesn't detract from, from the economic and political yeah. policies of Germany itself. Um, I think yeah, that can be two separate things. Yeah. But nevertheless, Leon, I think we've taken up a lot of your time. This has yes, been thank you. absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. So the book is called Coalition Country. It's it's very simple because it's got the cliff central colors. <laughs> and you got, and you got the, the woeful, inept leaders of all the main political parties on the front of it. And, uh, yeah, I, will, I highly recommend you read it. And if you enjoy this conversation, let Leon know. Can I just ask, how did you get them to all look so weird? <laughs> and by, you, by that, with, how did you get them all in one room? So you've got, you've got, you've got Cyril looking a bit surprised. He looks like he's just walked into a room and someone's taken a photo of him. So there's a little bit rabbit in the headlights slash he's kind of like muscular. He looks like he's about to attack you. You got Julius looking like he's thinking of something really evil. Um, and then you've got Musi who just looks like he doesn't trust anyone. <laughs> I'm better than you and I don't trust anyone. Does it not reflect the confusion that will follow once they have to form a coalition together? Probably. I, I, it's Anyway, great uh, book, uh, book editing. Uh, yeah, the credit goes it. to the editor and all the great people at Tafelberg who worked on it. I cannot take any credit Su- for that. Superb. All right. Uh, Leon, thank you very, very much. Uh, we can find you on Twitter. I think it's at Leon underscore Schreib. Eh? That's exactly right. Uh, S-C-H. S-C-H-R-E-I-B-E-R. But without the ER in the, in the Twitter yes, case. Yes, in the Twitter yeah. case. Uh, if you want to uh, follow Leon, who has uh, great insights, and as you've heard over the last more than an hour, uh, Ramon, final words? Well, I'm all you good. You always have some. I'm all good. More <laughs> political um, uh, polarization is required. Break the cultural hegemony of the ANC. And uh, this country may actually not be a shithole. <laughs> a, a mandla. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Ramon Trump. Uh if you enjoyed this podcast, as always, you can support us on uh, Patreon. You can become a patron, a patron uh, from as little as $1 a month, uh, which is one-ninth of what you pay Netflix every month. So stop being so stingy. Uh, we give you good content. As well, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm sure you know the pages, at Renegade underscore report on Twitter. We will catch you next time. Thank you for listening. Cheers.
This is CliffCentral.com.